this is the commercial property show Australia show number 42 How hard is your money going to be working for you and what rate of return is it going to be giving you? Hey, commercial property community. Thank you for joining me once again today. My name is Andrew Bean. Another great show today and here it is. Mish Daniel joins me for part two of Commercial 101. This is an excellent interview. We go into a little bit more higher level stuff like cash on cash returns, GST, the different kinds of structures that you can actually uh, purchase commercial property in. It's just a really good refresher. And also, if you're new to commercial property, this is the stuff that you need to know, like the back of your hand. Don't forget to check out the newest platform out there. It's about to be released, CP Data. That's Commercial Property Data. It's the first ever Australian platform that specifically targets commercial property for commercial investors, buyers agents, selling agents, and property professionals alike. Go and check it out. The website is www.commercialpropertydata.com.au. The platform is launching very, very soon. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. You can find our private group on Facebook by searching Commercial Property Show Community or you can click on the link in the show notes. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. All right, we are here with part two of Commercial 101 with Mish Daniel from Revolve Commercial. How are you, Mish? Hey, Andrew. Good to be back with you. Thank you. Very well. Yep, very, very good. So if you weren't listening prior to this episode, we have already done part one of Commercial 101, learning the fundamentals or even revising the fundamentals. And this is now part two. All right, Mish. So cash on cash return. Why is it so important and how do you calculate it? Okay, so why it's so important, Andrew, is I always say you want to make your money work as hard as it possibly can. So the question is, if you were to put your money into a commercial property, is it going to be returning as much as it would be if you're putting your money into a, let's say, a residential property? Okay. So how hard is your money going to be working for you and what rate of return is it going to be giving you? So for every $1,000 that you're putting in, what is the rate that you're going to be getting back in the commercial property or the investment? I'm just going to say overall investment that you're investing in. So how do you calculate it, Mish? 
Okay, so what you're going to do is you're going to calculate your annual net cash flow before tax, and you would divide that by your total cash invested, which is going to give you your cash on cash rate times by 100. Expressed as a percentage. Expressed as a percentage, yes. That's the actual money that you put into the deal yourself. You haven't borrowed that money. You've actually put it in. What cash on cash return do you aim for, Mish? What are your minimums? Look, I don't like to go less than conservatively, I would say 25%. We like to play in the space of around about 30, between 30 and 40%. That's really where we want to be most of the time. I would go down to 25% if I can see that there are upsides in the property that we can leverage off down the line. For instance, I'm busy purchasing a property at the moment for one of my clients which is probably the cap rate a little bit tight on it and the cash on cash is going to be probably a little bit tight as well. However, I know that there's a developer that's knocking on the door and is buying up quite a lot of the blocks around where we are purchasing. So it's inevitable they are going to want this block in order to do the development that they're wanting to do in two or three years' time. So that would be a little bit of an upside for us. So, I mean, that cash on cash return seems extremely high. I would have thought that a 10 to 15% cash on cash return is an average kind of cash on cash return for your typical kind of commercial investment. And 20 and above cash on cash return is an absolute great return. Andrew, I must apologize because the figures that I'm working on over here are uplift properties. So... The numbers that I'm giving to you are for semi-vacant properties and for properties that we are doing tremendous uplift on, okay? Your average, your general vanilla, I call it a vanilla property, so it's a set-and-forget property, we would work on around about 13.4%. Yeah, okay. Okay, That that sounds more realistic, yeah, because the properties, like the self-storage facilities that I'm looking at, the cash-on-cash return might be very, very low. It might be 10%, but I'm overlaying what I know the market can pay Um, Hmm. that location and if I can get to that 20 plus like that's a home run deal like that's that's a really really good deal Mm. and likewise I mean bearing in mind that every single property I look at I look at properties with exit strategies yeah I love I love properties with exit strategies if I can't see exit strategies then I need to see motivation for buying that property as maybe a set and forget so the difference would be Your set-and-forget properties would be a property that maybe has a stable tenant that's ongoing for a couple of years. You're paying a premium for it, but it's giving you a return of around about 13.4% versus a property where you're wearing it. There's holding costs. There's high risks in it. You're going to be doing uplift in it. And we look at those properties as I throw them into the development basket And if we're not making close to that 25%, and like I say, I like to be between the 25 and 30%, then it's not worth doing the deal because of the risk, the holding, cost, all of that sort of thing. So very dependent on what type of property you're chasing. Yes. Definitely, definitely. All right, Mish, moving on to the next question. What is the difference between gross income and net income and then also cash flow? Okay, great question there, Andrew. So your net income, now you get various different leases. You get a net income, you get a double net, and you get a triple net, okay? And understanding the difference is very, very important. And I'm going to start from the back. So a triple net income, a triple net lease 
is where the tenant pays everything, including the insurance and your land taxes, okay? Where a double net income would be perhaps where they pay for most of the outgoings, but they wouldn't pay land tax, for argument's sake. And a net income would be where they're just paying the basic outgoing. Now, the difference between your net lease and your gross lease is in a gross lease, you are paying all of those outgoings. However, your rental that you're receiving from the tenant would be net plus outgoings. So in other words, they're paying you a net lettable fee in terms of cost per square meter, but they're paying the outgoings as well. So you're charging them, let's say your net is 10,000 for argument's sake, but they're paying 15,000, which means that they are covering your outgoings. The difference is that you paying for them first and then you invoicing the client. Yep. Which one do you like better? What are the advantages of a net to gross lease? Okay. We would always prefer a net lease where you're negotiating a net rate, which is your bottom line. Okay. And then the tenant picks up all of those outgoings. And the difference would be that if, for argument's sake, there's a difference in rates, the tenant picks up that difference. If there's a difference in land tax, in insurance, we've had uh, differences that insurance is all over the place. They can be a huge impact on your cash flow at the end of the day. If you are paying for the insurance, if that's part of your gross lease, you're responsible for that insurance and you're paying for it. Whereas if your tenant is paying for it, if it's a net lease and your tenant is paying for that insurance and there's a variation in the insurance, then they pick up that additional cost, not you. And that's the huge difference. So the net lease is really lower risk for the actual landlord. Correct. Yes. So with a gross lease, this is one of the the value add strategies that I like to have a look at. It's hard to figure out, but you've got a gross lease and you can identify that the outgoings are extremely high and you can actually reduce those outgoings through maybe finding a better electricity supplier, like putting solar on the roof or, you know, for some reason they're really, really high. If you can identify that, bring the outgoings down then that goes to your bottom line, not to the tenant's bottom line. So you're actually increasing your cash flow from the property. You can do that, absolutely. I mean, with those sort of circumstances, yes, you can have a little bit of a win on that side. Generally, if you're putting solar on the roof, your tenant, you know, if you're buying a building that hasn't got solar, and then you're coming along and you're putting solar on the roof, the tenant's first question is going to be, what's in it for me? Mm. You know, you own the building, you can do whatever you want with that roof, realistically. But if you haven't got the buy-in of the tenant, you're going to come unstuck. So there's got to be a little bit of a benefit in there for them as well. That's going down another rabbit hole again. (laughs) (laughs) Look, generally, I like to keep things clean and simple. So we always gun for a net lease which just keeps it clean and simple. If there are any variations and changes, then the tenant would pay for those variations and changes. In the case of solar, you can still be putting solar on the roof and you can still be benefiting by additional fees. So your tenant is still paying, maybe give them a 5% discount and you're still charging them a premium. So you're paying less for that uh, electricity 
they're still getting a win on it and you're still getting a win on it as well. So there's one other term that we haven't kind of um, spoken about, and, and that's cash flow. So in terms of your spreadsheet, what's the difference between the net income and cash flow? What, what's come out there where we actually can make a, a really difference? So. Okay. Very big difference between income versus cash flow. So your income would be the rental that you are receiving on a monthly basis, okay, before you're paying your interest. Yep. Okay. Your cash flow is the cash that you are earning. So it's it's pure unencumbered cash flow that yep. you are earning after all your expenses. So it's after everything, after everything is taken into consideration. And I would look at cash flow over a 12-month period of how much has that building cost me? Have we had to do fit new air conditioners in or uh, do roof maintenance or something that would fall in our responsibility? The annual cash flow would be what we are putting in our pocket versus your income would be what you're actually being paid. Yep. So the cash flow has gone through the fire and it's come out the other end and it's gold. It's what you're putting in your pocket. The net (laughs) income is something that you value the property from, but you still got to pay your mortgage interest repayments from it. Yeah, your mortgage repayments, uh, if you've got maintenance fees, if you've got uh, anything else that's going to come off that uh, net income. And then moving one step back again, your gross income, if you have a gross lease, you've still got to pay your outgoings from that to get your net income then you've still got to pay your mortgage to get your cash flow. So it's a big knock-on effect. There we go. Absolutely. Yeah. So again, that's why we, we do prefer net leases because um, often what happens in, uh, and especially if you're buying a property, sometimes there are little things that are left out. If it's a gross lease, there might be little things that are left out that um, you don't take into into your due diligence You know, when analyzing the property. It suddenly pop up afterwards, you know, like um, Joe Bloggs, who's Mr. Casual, comes and cuts the grass once a month and charges 50 or 100 bucks. That hasn't been uh, accommodated in the due diligence. We've picked up one or two of those. And if that's a gross, you pay for it. Yeah. So I guess the gross lease has more kind of untraceable expenses than, than a net lease usually does. Yes. Yes, inadvertently. That's that's the way that you could say it. I love your analogy that your cash flow is the gold in your pocket. It certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> it most certainly is the gold in your pocket. That's what you're left with. <laughs> All right, Mish. So uh, in a commercial lease, there are guarantees. There are a few of them. Can you explain them? Okay. Um And again, this is, I think, where people make a huge mistake. You get your bank guarantees, you get your director's guarantees, and you get your bond guarantees. So your bank guarantee is a document, and it's a physical printed certificate that the bank gives a guarantee that your tenant will be good for, let's say, three months rent. Okay, so they're guaranteeing. And what actually happens there is that the tenant actually puts up those funds and the bank holds those funds in trust. And they give you a certificate to say, yep, those funds are there should anything happen and you need to call on it. You need to produce your certificate and we'll release those funds to you. 
Now, I'm going to mention something else, which is, again, down a little rabbit hole. When you're purchasing a property, and it's one of the biggest mistakes that we find people make, is when they purchase this property, they don't ask about those bonds. They don't ask where they are and who's holding them. This is a little bit of gold that I'm giving a little bit of a, a hint over here, a tip. Yep. When you're purchasing a property, one of the first questions, the minute you go unconditional, is you want to know where all of those bonds are, okay? Whether it's it's at the bank, sometimes the lawyers hold them, sometimes the managing agents hold them. So you need to know exactly where that is because when you take access to their property, it needs to be transferred to you, okay? Yep. That's just on a sidebar. The other guarantees would be the director's guarantees where the director, and we don't see very many of these, it's not very often that uh, directors would give the guarantee, but basically directors would stand surety in the event of there being a default in the rental. So that would be some kind of a personal guarantee where should they default, you would have access to their personal assets. So you'd be able to do a claim against them, against their personal assets. So I've actually had a look at this a couple of times where I'll see a director's guarantee and I'll try and figure out if they own any property that could be used as collateral used. to, you know, yeah. but, and a, yeah. a lot of the times I think that a director might put a guarantee up, but if they don't own any assets, then it's also pretty much like it's, it's worthless. It's worth absolutely nothing. And likewise, when you, the minute you see a, a director's guarantee, you are going to have to go and dig deeper, get your solicitor to find out more about them, what they own and what they've put in their wife's name. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's usually the case. Or often what happens is they would sign a director's guarantee in a shelf company or in a company that owns nothing. Yep. We don't like director's guarantees. And it's for me, it's a little bit of a red flag. Yeah, fair enough. And so what's the difference between a bank guarantee and a security deposit, like a bond? Okay, so the security deposit is actual cash that the tenant has paid. It's hard cash that's gone into the bank and that would be paid generally to the owner or to the managing company. So the, the management, asset management company would be holding that and that effectively should be held in trust. So that is, if it goes to the owner, it's not money that the owner can go on holiday with. They should really be putting that in a separate account that is only accessible should the tenant default. Yeah. That is the right way to be doing it. So it really should be in a trust. We often deal with uh, when we do acquisitions is when we see that, we always advise that those should be funds that are inaccessible funds. And with the bank guarantee compared to like the bond, is the bank guarantee guaranteeing the lease and the bond guaranteeing the structure? When you say structure, Andrew, what, are you talking about the structure as in the building? As in the building, yeah. So for repairs and maintenance, when the tenant leaves or does something wrong and breaks something, you can draw from the bond. But is the bank guarantee guaranteeing the lease? It would work both ways. So depending on what your lease says in it. So in other words, depending on, on what you agree in your lease, if there's a make good clause and there is a bank guarantee and the tenant has not made good, you can actually call upon that bank guarantee to do the repairs in the departing of the tenant, as like you would do if you have a, a bond, a cash bond. 
Okay, so yeah, because a couple, I was looking at a lease yesterday and they had either or, like if I don't have this, I've got that. So yeah, it was a bit interesting. Yes, I mean, I'd consider that as a fairly strong lease. Again, not too many of those because most tenants would say, well, you can either have the bank guarantee or the bond, you can't have either or. Yep. So that could be a good lease. Okay, Mish, so what are the differences between residential due diligence and commercial due diligence? I love this topic, Andrew. I could talk about this for another week. (laughs) (laughs) So I always say in residential, you're looking at two areas of due diligence. You're looking at your basic area and you're looking at your structure in your building, okay? Generally, when you're buying a residential, you're not looking at tenants. You might look at the neighbors and what's happening in the area. Is it a good street? That sort of thing. So it's fairly simple. There's the building, got a good roof, it's sound, and away we go. In commercial, you're looking at six basic areas of due diligence, okay? You're looking at your area and your street, your surroundings. You're looking at the building, the structure, I always go a little bit deeper in the due diligence. We're looking at the movable assets. So we're looking at the machinery, which would be lifts. It would be air conditioners. It would be cranes. Any machinery that is part of that building. Then you would look at your legal aspect of it. So in other words, what are the titles? What are the the lease itself? And you're looking at the legal aspects of the lease. So in other words, you want to analyze that lease to ensure that it is as safe as houses so that you do have bonds, that there are uh, make good clauses in it. So the pros and cons of the lease itself, that you really want to go into deep depth with the lease. And then you want to have a look at the tenant. Who's the tenant? What their business structure is? How sound are they? How long have they been there? What's the likelihood of them staying? Is there fixed machinery? Who's paid for that fixed machinery? Is there a fit out? So we would go into every single aspect of the tenant themselves, which would form part of that due diligence. Okay. An additional area of DDs that we've started doing now is I always look at the rental income. So we look at their invoices, we have a look at their track record, we have a look at how well they've been paying their rentals and how they reacted through COVID-19. And that would be the sixth area of how that would give us a good understanding of where the tenant is, who they are and how they do business. So you said there are six aspects. Can you just name the six aspects? I thought I just did, Andrew. Oh no, just just, (laughs) just go bang, 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 bang. Okay, so it's building. It's location, so street. We always look at the at the neighbours, so what's surrounding it, uh, what's happening in the area, gentrifying in the area. We look at the tenant themselves, the strength of the tenant. We're looking at the lease and we're looking at the legals. What we've added on now is the financials of the tenant themselves. As a result of due diligence, we ask for those financials if we can. So we would always ask for a ledger and the rental ledger would tell us more about the tenant and how they react. And that due to COVID as well? Yes. We used to ask for a ledger up to six months, minimum six months. We're now asking for ledgers of 24 months so we can see how they traded through COVID-19. Fair enough. So there's another metric or way of analysing a deal 
that usually big institutions might use, and that's IRR. Can you explain what that is? Okay, this is an area that we don't really touch on. I would say very good for big institutions. It's uh, your internal rate of return for the type of acquisitions that we do. We don't really focus on that. So we brush it off. And so because a lot of people ask me sometimes is what IRR do you use? And I basically say I don't use it. I I would never factor that in because the type of commercial that your general punter is buying, it's not warranted. No, there's too many assumptions in future that you need to make that you're just guessing, you're speculating. um, And I don't like that. Yeah, you know, you you really do need an office full of analysts to be doing your your internal rate of return. And on some of the projects that we might do, which would be more the syndication type projects, we would look at that IRR, but we don't focus on it as a big thing. I think your larger investors, when they're buying A-class assets worth trillions, they would really need to go into that and have a look at what all the variations are in the market, back, forward, inside, out, upside down. It really is a full market analysis that goes into the financials of it as well. Yeah. So I guess uh, IRR is usually, if you're trying to get people to put money into your syndication, then you know IRR is warranted. But you know if you're just buying a strata yes. unit, it's really irrelevant. Totally. You absolutely don't need it for your small acquisitions. If, you, if you're doing your due diligence well, it will answer most of your questions that you need to know on a small acquisition there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm. So, Mish, another thing that comes into play when you're buying a commercial property is depreciation. Can you explain what that is? A lot of people don't understand depreciation, Andrew, and commercial depreciation is very different to residential depreciation. There are a lot of components that are depreciated over and above. So your bricks and mortar, the depreciation, so the quality of your roof, the quality of your moving parts. I mentioned it earlier, your, uh, we would call them shuttles, air conditioners, lifts, all that those sort of mechanical assets, when you're purchasing a property, you're taking on all of those assets as well. In depreciation, what they basically do is they would analyze it and depreciate those assets on an annual basis. You get that back as a tax write-off. Yep. So it's almost like if we look at it in reverse – it's almost like putting cash back in your pocket. Yep. Okay, because that depreciation, by, by virtue of the fact that you are getting a depreciation on your property, um, you actually, you, you've you paid for the money, but you're actually getting it back in your taxes. Yep. So you've got, it's a paper loss that you're using against your taxable income to lower it. Correct. Correct. Yes. So, so you're not actually getting the, the, the funds physically in your hand, but you are paying less in your, as you say, paper loss. It's in your taxes. Now, a lot of people kind of push back on this where they don't want to do, get depreciation on their property. And they say, well, why should they pay a thousand bucks or one and a half thousand bucks, whatever it is, um, because they can't see it. But I can tell you, if you're speaking to any accountant that is worth their, their, their dollars, they will tell you straight away, get your depreciations because they can use that year on year and you get ongoing depreciation on your property as the years click over. 
So every single year, they would use that to give you tax benefits. So inadvertently, it is money back in your pocket. Yeah, there's actually a really good um, blog article on the podcast website, and it basically explains that the difference between commercial depreciation to residential depreciation is that, you know, there's pages and pages, 200 plus like types of areas that can be Mm. depreciated for commercial, but in residential, there's much lower. And then also you have to be the first owner of that component for Mm. a residential property to actually be able to depreciate it. So if you're buying a property secondhand, which most people are, you can't Mm. use it to depreciate it. Whereas commercial, that's not the same. As soon as you buy the property, you have access to depreciate those materials. Yes, and you have access to depreciate that entire property as a going concern ongoingly for the duration of the property for as long as it goes. The other thing that I wanted to mention on depreciation, Andrew, is that it does diminish over the years as the property gets older. But the difference is if you're replacing equipment, so if you're replacing, let's say, an air conditioner in a commercial property, you get immediate depreciation on that air conditioner at full value. Yep. Okay. Whereas in residential, yes, you can't you can't value that. And the other thing that I wanted to mention about depreciation is brand new commercial buildings. So if you are buying a brand new building, let's say off plan, and you're the first owner of that building, you get massive depreciation in your first couple of years. So again. I always look at that, we look at the cap rate of the property and we take into consideration what the depreciation is because at the end of your first financial year, your cap rate's actually going to be slightly higher taking your depreciation into consideration. Yeah, exactly. And I'll ask you a question from one of our listeners, Cecilia. She was asking me yesterday on Facebook, how do you factor in depreciation to your cash flow calculator? Like, do you actually bother about it or is it icing on top how do you use it mish i'm going to say it's going to be icing on top and it just makes me very excited when i have a look at my financials at the end of the year and my accountant says to me ah mish and that's the depreciation bang we've got an additional couple of thousand dollars on it so we don't factor it in into our basic calculation when we're purchasing a property but we do mentally know that we are going to get that depreciation in so when purchasing a property, it's always a good idea to have a conversation with your accountant and to find out at what value they would depreciate their property at. Generally, they would need a depreciation report that is not older than about three years old. Again, this is where I would strongly advise that if you're purchasing a commercial property, get your depreciation done immediately. There's something else that I want to tell you about depreciation is that when you buy a property, you get that depreciation report within the first month, okay? As you do a fit-out on that property, I'll give you a live case study. I've got a client that bought a cracker of a property, almost kicked his butt because he was driving such a hard deal on it. We negotiated a property, got him for about 405000 and there's a medical group that are going into that property. So he's going to be spending about $180,000 in a fit-out for this medical group. Now, he had an evaluation done or had the depreciation done on the property in current condition, and he will have a depreciation report done after he's done that fit-out, 
which means that he is going to earn massive depreciation on that $180,000 that is going into that property. He will also gain depreciation value on the contribution that the tenant is making towards the property as well. So the tenant is making an additional contribution that is going to total about $250,000. Wow. He will get the benefit of the full $250,000 once that fit out is complete. Beautiful. So very important, the day you buy the property, get your depreciation. And if you have any fit out, get your depreciation done once those fit outs, once you have your new tenants coming in. So what I, one more thing I like to stress as well is that if you are factoring in depreciation to your cash flow for a property to figure out if it's a good deal, then that's, you know, you're flirting with danger there. You shouldn't even be thinking about what depreciation is. If that's what is the deciding factor, whether it's a good deal or not, mm. the depreciation, say, for instance, you've miscalculated the depreciation and now it's not a good deal, then mm. you're in trouble there. So it needs to be a good deal on day one, not factoring in depreciation. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And as you say, it's flying very close to the wind where if you're buying the property based on the fact that you might get that depreciation, well, then you're buying it at the wrong cap rate, yep. straight up. Right. Yep. If you're bargaining on getting a discount out of your depreciation, don't buy the property at all. And which leads me on to say, you know, you make your money when you purchase the property. You don't make your money when you sell the property. Yep. It's what you do with it in between is where you're going to make your biggest profits. Definitely. So if you're so, buying right, you're going to be, yeah, you're going to be earning better. Perfect. So mm. Mish, a lot of people talk about whether or not you should be buying a property in your personal name or say like a trust or a company. Where do you, where do you go on that topic? I'm biased with regards to this and it's very dependent from person to person. However, I put a blanket across everything and every single person that I would speak to I would say asset protection, okay? Two words, check out your asset protection. So nine times out of 10, uh, if you want to be completely asset protected, you'd want to be using a trust. Yep. And we have very good accountants and solicitors who we refer our clients to. There's no obligation Go and have a conversation with them. Let them explain the difference and let them explain the risks to whatever, wherever you are on your journey. So everybody's in a different place. Everybody has got different assets. They're either still working or they own their own properties or whatever it is. So your risk factor would be very different from person to person. Either which way, I look at it from a business perspective. And I say a commercial property to me is a business. It is a going concern. I like to be asset protection and I, protected and I would like all my clients to be. And the best way to do this is to put it in a trust. So there are about two or three steps in that trust to make it 100% asset protected. And do you only like one property per trust? With regards the properties, we would have a look at the land tax to see how it impacts on the land tax. So if it's two low-value properties, I'll put them both into the same trust. And also, I would do that across borders, so across states. Generally, if it is two properties in one trust, they would have to be underneath that uh, land tax threshold if they're in the same state. 
if they're in different states, you can play around a little bit more with that. And again, your accountant should uh, give you the correct advice. And I loved how you touched there was you said that buying a commercial property, it is a business. Each property is a business mm. in its own right. And I really love that. Mm. It really is. I mean, if you're accustomed to purchasing residential properties, well, and you're going into a commercial property and you're purchasing a commercial property with residential brains, you could run into problems. You really want to be purchasing a commercial property with good commercial advice, with good commercial experience behind you. I mean, I went very naturally into commercial because I had been involved in commercial for 20 years. No, it wasn't quite 20 years, about 15 years. I ran factories and I'd been negotiating leases and I was very familiar with office and um, uh, big factory warehouses. So for me, it was like a, a natural progression to go into that. But if you haven't had any of that experience, please get help. Don't go and do this alone because that is an area that really stings. It really hurts. If you make one mistake, it could cost you big time down the line. So speaking of asset protection, what insurances do you need, like insurance policies do you need when you actually purchase a commercial property? Great question, Andrew. There are two basic insurances that you need and that you need to look into. Okay, so you need to make sure that your property is insured, first and foremost. Depending on the type of property, there's different levels of insurance that you could have. Now, if it's a shopfront property, we always want to make sure that your plate glass is insured as well. So there are little extra things that you want to make sure that you're covered for. If it's a, a big industrial building, you wouldn't really look at plate glass unless you have got some kind of showroom in the front. All right. What you can also do, and depending on the type of lease that you have, is your tenant would need to be insured as well. So when you're purchasing a property, one of the requirements is that certificate of currency as well, so that you make sure that they've got personal insurance or company insurance and that they are covered and their contents is covered. So they've got business cover, they've got contents cover, and what you can actually do is insist if you have got that plate glass is that they pick up the insurance for the plate glass. It's a little thing that flies under the radar that most people miss out. However, glass breaks so easily in so many instances. A car just needs to drive past and shoot a, a stone into your shop front. Bang, yeah. there it goes. Who's responsible yeah. for that? So I'm just giving a, a stupid example there, but it's something that flies under the radar. We would prefer that the tenant takes out the plate glass insurance because effectively if something's going to happen in their business and the glass is broken in their day-to-day -day business, it's their responsibility. Yeah, definitely. Moving on to like basically insurance, ensuring that you have enough money to cover a vacancy. How much kind of buffer do you like to have in reserves for when or if the property goes vacant? Depending on where the property is located, if it's a regional property, you really want to have about 12 months rent in reserve. I'm being very conservative again, because depending on the type of property and where the property is located, it could take up to six to 12 months to re-tenant that property. Yep. Also, when a new tenant comes in, they might ask for a fit-out contribution, or they might ask for incentives free rentals for a period of time, three months, six months, whatever it is. So you want to make sure that you do have a buffer that can cover that. 
Whereas if you're in the more cosmopolitan areas, if you're in the more metro areas, your buffer could be slightly less because the tendency is or the expectation is that you'd be able to tenant that property a hell of a lot quicker. But you still require a buffer in the event that they're looking for uh, rental incentives and, again, for fit-out. And there's various different ways that you can negotiate those incentives and fit-outs depending on the type of the tenant. I won't go into that now. That's a whole other topic by itself. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's liquid cash in the bank, isn't it, Mish? Yes. How do you feel about having, say, a credit card? Say you have a $10,000 limit on a credit card just in case something like that happens and you need to do a fit-out. How do you feel about having a credit card as part of your kind of buffer insurance? Look, I think it's it's very dependent on the individual, on the investor themselves. Personally, I don't like credit cards. Personally, I don't like paying somebody else interest on money that I could already have. So we could go down the rabbit hole of, of how we we work our accounts, but generally we like to keep one account per property so that that property owns those funds. Everything that's going in is for that property and everything that's going out is for that property only. However, we do sometimes do a loan from one of the properties to the other properties to facilitate whatever the requirements are. And I would prefer to do that as a loan to one of the other entities because it's my money and it's my interest. So as opposed to paying a third party, a credit card, for instance, you're paying a premium on that. It's like taking out a personal loan. Some people do it. Some people like credit cards. I think it's it's very much personal preference. It depends on how you like to run your business, essentially, yeah. because you are running a business when you have a commercial property. I think it's nice to have it maybe in your back pocket in case of a catastrophic event, but definitely wouldn't be your first line of buffer. Absolutely. Yeah, you can have it. And I think money's cheap today. So anybody can go and open up a credit card should you really need it. Yeah, use it. You know, if you're in that in that situation, if you really, really need it, instead of losing the property and you're in a, a financial situation where you do need it, then yep. It would be, I would put that as my last resort. Yeah. Okay. So let's roll with this, uh, how we set up the accounts. That's interesting. So obviously when you're setting up an account or you're buying a property, you're going to have a trust account that's going to have a bank account associated with it. And you said that you have one account for all the incoming rent and the outgoing. Would you also set up a GST account as well, possibly? Okay. So in our instance, we don't set up the GST accounts for those accounts. We would set up a GST account for our business accounts that we are charging GST. Yes, we are charging GST on the property accounts. However, the property accounts are very, very simple because your transactions are generally two or three transactions a month. So it's very easy to track the GST because you're doing, you're paying BAS or I'm assuming that it is over 70,000 that you are paying BAS. If you are trading under 70,000, then there is no BAS. You're not charging GST and you're not paying GST. So with those entities, again, from an accounting point of view, we keep them incredibly neat and clean. And if there are any loans, and what we call loans, and I think a lot of people don't understand this, is when you're purchasing a property, let's say you're purchasing a property for 500000 for argument's sake, 
and you're getting a loan for 300,000 and you putting 200,000 into that property, okay? So that is your cash that you're putting into the property. Now, effectively, what you're doing is you are loaning $200,000 to that entity, okay? And let's pretend that entity belongs to your brother, Joe Bloggs, whoever, an outside entity. It's still a loan that you want your money back from. So when I say the loan account, we might at some stage pay ourselves back out of that 200000 So I would ticket that as loan repayment, which again makes it very simple for your accountant to do a tracking and a trace of every single transaction that's going through that account. Okay. So from a trust point of view, you would open the bank account in the trust and the trust would be owned by an entity. Yep. So the way that we set it up is we would open an entity. So Joe Bloggs PTY LTD as a trustee for Joe Bloggs Trust. Yep. I like to name them the same so that they're 100% clear. We know that that entity owns that trust and then that trust would own property A and possibly property B. And that trust has one bank account. So everything that happens in property A and B would go through that one bank account. That's really interesting. So you wouldn't have a few buckets under that account. So you just have one account and that's it. No other like sub accounts in that overarching account for the one property. Correct. I just have one account for that. And the reason we do that, like I say, if it is GST, we're doing our BAS every single quarter. And it's very easy to track and trace the BAS because there are very few transactions that are happening. Because it's not a trading account, it's purely a property holding account. There should be very little interaction. There should be very few accounts that are going through or payments and disbursements that are going through that one account. Okay, so I'll ask you a bit of an accounting question now. So if you have, say, three properties and they're all paying under 70000 technically you don't need to pay GST. If you keep them separate, do you get away with not paying GST in them? In the other light, if you put them together and you're obviously earning more than 70000 you'd have to pay GST. Is that yes, correct? that's correct, yes. Now, there's pros and cons to that as well. And your pros would be, yes, you don't have to pay GST, but your con is that every time you're spending something, so, and I'm, I'm going back to the air conditioner, let's say you're buying a new air conditioner, you're going to be paying GST on that air conditioner, okay? And you cannot claim that GST back because you're not GST registered. Oh, uh, okay. So that would be your con. So you're losing 10% of whatever it is, the hardware that you're installing. Or if you're doing an uplift, let's say you, you're replacing roof panels, you're going to be paying GST, but you're not going to be claiming that GST back. Yeah, okay. I understand. So, so sometimes it is better to be probably putting properties together that are just over the threshold so you can claim stuff back. Yes. And so it's a little bit of a dancing act between the value of the property, the rental income, and your land tax, that you want to be clumping those together and ensuring that you're on that threshold, that you're not putting too many properties in one trust, that you're going over the land tax threshold. And if you can have a GST registered, it would be in your interest to have it. 
you are going to pay bookkeeper's fees and you are going to be paying a little bit on accounting, but I can tell you it's well worth the fees. Yeah, fair enough. I guess every investor's situation is different, so please do get uh, you know, professional accounting advice. Most definitely. It is an area when you are buying a commercial property, I would strongly advise that you sit down with an accountant who understands commercial acquisitions because there are a ton of accountants out there that do business accounting. They don't necessarily understand the benefits that can be gained in accounting, in understanding the, I want to say, fine-tuning commercial acquisitions because there are a lot of accountants that do general accounting, but they don't know how to claim the benefits in commercial properties or development properties. And it's very different to residential. Okay. So when people come on board with us, it's one of the first questions that we ask is just going to the 101 of commercial acquisitions. Andrew, I would say the first thing is, do you have entities set up? How do you want to buy the properties? Do you have equity? And do you have a solid accountant who understands commercial acquisitions? How many commercial properties do they own or how many commercial properties, how many commercial clients or how many clients do they have that own commercial properties? Because that's going to give you a good idea whether you're with the right accountant or not. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I understand that you have some teaching material, learning material. What kind of material is that and, and how do you get your hands on it? Okay, so we offer a range of services. So we've got the very general sort of education, which is an online education, and that gives you the grassroots, the foundations of moving forward. What we have found is most of our students might do that, but then they're still very nervous, nearly about doing something. They really want their hands held. So we brought in the one-on-one mentoring program where I would take them on. We do one-on-one mentoring and It is very uh, value-based where we set targets. They set their own targets and goals and aspirations, and I would assist them to reach those goals, okay? We would do a strategy. We do a master plan of how we go to achieve their goals, and we set out that strategy in phases, phase one to get to the first step, and then phase two and phase three, and we would basically mentor them right through that process. A lot of our clients don't have the time of day for that. They just want a property and they just want to start and they want to learn on the job. So as a buyer's agent, we would pick them up as a client and find them the property, walk them through. I do like my clients to know as much as possible. So the benefit is that they do get mentoring as an added benefit when you come on board with me as a buyer's agent. So I do like to make sure that my clients know as much as possible, learn as much as possible, and they can start doing it themselves. Yeah, I love that. So where can the listener go to uh, actually find you and find out even more about your services? So the best place is to go to the website, which is www.revolvecommercial.com.au. There are quite a lot of drop-downs. There's free services. We offer a webinar every single month. It would be the first Tuesday of every month. We try and make it as informational as possible. We'd have a guest speaker on, and I would do live case studies just to show what can be done, what we are doing. We've got a educational Facebook site as well. That's uh, Cashflow on Autopilot. 
So go along to Cashflow and Autopilot, uh, become a member, we'll take you through a series of steps and there's a lot of free content on that. So a lot of educational content on that. A lot of blogs on the website as well. And that's on the revolvecommercial.com.au. Fantastic. Today's guest has been Mish Daniel. Thanks, Mish. Thanks, Andrew. We have now made available a pre-registration for CP Data. So if you'd like to jump in early and get a special discount of $20 a month, that equates to $240 saving per year, you can jump in early now and sign up. But if you don't want to, you want to wait, that's fine too. And it's only going to be available before the platform goes live. You can jump in and get that saving. Go to www.commercialpropertydata.com.au. This offer is only going to be available before the platform goes live. And we're expecting the platform to go live in the next 20 to 50 days. So we're not exactly sure when it's going to be released. So jump in now if you want to. But if you don't want to, you can just pay full price when the platform goes live. It's $89 a month when the platform goes live. But now you can secure your membership at $69 a month. That's a $240 saving per year. And the platform also comes with a 30-day satisfaction guarantee. So after the platform goes live, in the first 30 days, if you're not 100% happy, then I'm not happy and I don't want to keep your money. So if you are not happy after the first 30 days of the platform going live, simply send me an email saying, I want to be refunded and I will happily give you a refund. And so there is absolutely no risk on your part of losing your money. And this is how confident I am. This platform is going to be absolutely amazing. Everyone is gonna love it because it's gonna be so helpful and useful and make commercial property investing that much easier. So 100% money back guarantee after the first 30 days of the platform going live. No questions asked and absolutely no risk of losing your money. So if you do want to take up this special discounted offer, go to www.commercialpropertydata.com.au. Thank you to my guest, Mish Daniel and Kevin McLeod for the music. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, be obsessed or be average. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.